Nakoda Unknown. I'm Alan Geis. And I'm Sheldon McCoy. I'm Kylie Black. With us once again is the founder of D-Man Studios, <laughs> Texas badass, Danny <laughs> Davila. How the heck are you, man? I'm pretty good, man. How are you all? Doing fantastic. Doing it's, been, it's been a minute. I know. I know. Uh, and you know what's interesting is this is so this is a special episode. This is our this is Code Unknown going into the true crime world. And you were with us for our only other special episode, which was on oh, yeah. uh, the, the infamous Treasure, Treasure Island, Island. <laughs> 1972. And so I think it's only right that like, so on how did this get made? Adam Scott is on all the fast and fear or yeah, all the Vin Diesel movie. So you might have to be our like special episode guest. We'll see. I'm down, man. Yeah. But okay. So we are here to talk about the Twilight Zone, the Twilight Zone movie accident. And uh, as we will see, perhaps the term accident is not the right one, but you can we'll let you make the decision so without further ado let's get into this despite being over 60 years old impressions and popular culture from rod serling's the twilight zone are still felt today thanks to its ambitious socially aware storytelling you could say that the notorious theme song is synonymous with feelings of eeriness and unfortunately a real life tragedy happened on the set of the twilight zone movie that would go on to serve as a moral lesson for filmmakers and audiences alike. When you look at all the evidence and testimony, it is clear that this was not a freak accident, but a result of ego, poor planning, rule breaking, and bad luck that reshaped how films are made to this day. I thought it was interesting how such a, in terms of like audience recognition, such an insignificant film not that it was bad or good, but it just was something that wasn't really paid attention to, made such an impact like in the industry. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Mm -hmm. I, 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 no one saw this coming and, and uh, as we will see, yeah, it, it has changed everything. So on July 23rd, 1982, Vic Morrow and two child actors, six-year-old Renee Shin Chen and seven-year-old Micah Dinley were killed by a helicopter while filming a scene for a segment being directed by John Landis. This event would also lead to the first time a film director faced criminal charges for events that occurred while making a movie. People supported Landis after the event, and even his son, screenwriter Max Landis, has spoken out against those that remind the public of what happened. Landis remarked that the incident gave his father PTSD and the acquittal of his charge as a fluke accident should be enough for people to move on. But to call this an accident based on everything that we now know is too simplistic. As you will see, it is John Landis' reckless disregard for the welfare of children, refusal to abide by child labor laws, and his careless, carelessness in planning for a stunt created the perfect storm of conditions for the quote-unquote accident. So let's jump into the tragedy of the Twilight Zone movie. In the 1980s, there was a group of young, up-and-coming directors who had made their mark on Hollywood. One of them was Steven Spielberg, and he decided to unite some of these new talents for an anthology film that would introduce a new generation to the Twilight Zone. Spielberg enlisted Joe Dante, who had done The Howling, George Miller, who made the first two Mad Max films, and John Landis, who had done Animal House, Blues Brothers, and An American Werewolf in London. The disrespect to Babe 
you got to mention Babe. City. <laughs> Babe hadn't come out yet. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're right. <laughs> and, and Happy Feet. You got to remember Happy Feet. <laughs> oh, it would, we're only talking about up to that point. Okay. Yeah. It is worth noting that all segments were remakes of original episodes, except the one directed by Landis. So for me, it's almost as if they were cursed for going against Rod Serling in a way. I mean, I think it's also like worth noting that because every director is so different. They have completely different tones. And I don't know if everybody in each crew was like, I don't know if there was all the same producers that there were for like the other segments. I think there's like yeah. different tiers of things. So I don't know who knew what. I agree. If you look at the mm -hmm. IMDb list, there was like, there was separate producers for different segments. So I think that's, that's why it feels that way. So you're right. And another crazy aspect about this whole thing is that, um, Originally scripted is what we got, the story. The, he took it to his producers on his segment. They said, uh, we want the character to be redeemed. So Landis actually wrote in the helicopter crash and him saving the two children. It wasn't even supposed to be that. So I'm just like, oh, my God. Again. It's out of, yeah. As, as, so if, whether we say this is a, an accident or not or whatever your opinion is, uh, this was very much guided by Landis. And I mean, I guess maybe it wouldn't be totally fair to because things couldn't be predicted. But again, as we will see, it's not like this guy was the most respectful, careful, humble, nice guy. He very much set the situation up to be an accident. So the segment follows Vic Morrow as a bigoted man who finds himself thrown through history and experiencing the worst atrocities through the eyes of the victims. Morrow's career had been on a decline. So this was a big win for him. And perhaps this aspect contributed to his attitude of just going along with the stunt for fear of being thought of as difficult or be fired. Throughout the episode, Moro is chased by Nazis, KKK members, and American soldiers in Vietnam. And now this concept falls in line with the Twilight Zone ideology of forcing an antagonistic person to endure peril similar to that they've inflicted on others. By the way, I just want to know, did you guys think that the whole segment was just silly? Like, they're calling him, like, I mean, I guess I don't want to say they should have put him in blackface, but they're, like, calling him black, and he's not black. He's like, look at me, and yeah. did it just seem kind of silly that, like, did, could you not suspend disbelief? I mean, I, I don't know. Like, this is so, um, this is, I think, important what you're talking about earlier when you say, like, they lost the elements of Sterling by yeah. changing so much. They, like, the entire, they took this, the idea of this Twilight Zone episode called The Quality of Mercy, but they completely, like, lost the message behind it. So, like, in the Twilight Zone episode, it's about, it's, like, takes place in 1945, and there's these American group of soldiers that are at odds, sort of, with this um, group of Japanese soldiers. And the Japanese soldiers at that point are wounded and sick, and they're sort of retreating. And the American soldiers know that they've already won the war, so they don't really need to keep attacking. But this one, um, I can't remember the title, but like who's in charge wants to keep going. And so at some point he gets like knocked in the head and wakes up and he's um, in a Japanese soldier in 1942 when the Japanese were leading the war. And it's the reverse situation where they don't really need to attack the Americans, but, um, but they want to anyway, even though the Americans are like wounded and sick, just like the odds. But I mean, in that one, he's also, he's played by a Japanese actor as well. He's not played yes. by a, oh, an American actor. <clears throat> um, but 
Yeah, but it just like the idea of the Twilight Zone episodes, you're taking this group that even in the 60s, I think, was villainized by many Americans, which are Japanese or Japanese Americans. And you were turning the odds so that you were able to empathize and say like, just because these handful of people at this time were bad, that doesn't mean this whole nationality or like everybody from Japan is evil. So you're like de-villainizing these people that a lot of Americans, especially those alive during World War II, um, ha held like hatred or prejudice against. Whereas in this, you're like completely reversing that by just putting a guy who's sort of racist in groups that have already been continuously marginalized. So it doesn't really devillainize any group that's not being, um, I mean, nobody in the 80s was like, uh, nobody in the 1980s was, uh, had, I mean, I guess there were some, but there weren't like a ton of racism. It wasn't like a ton of racism in the 80s in comparison to like how many Americans I think disliked Japan in the 60s. No, I get another. Oh, go ahead, Charlie. I would say another reason why I think this just doesn't work in this segment is the tonal shift from the prologue. We get this goofy opening yeah. with Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd, and then we go right into uh, John Landis directed both, which is weird. He set up the tone for him just to like throw it all out, and then it becomes like a really dour, serious like this guy's gonna endure the hardships of like the racist people, like, and it's just yeah. like uh, it just does not work because of that largely. Even just the the scene at the beginning, like, okay, when before, he, when he's just shouting obscenities in the bar and, and that was so uncomfortable. Like, I was just like, oh, like, I can't, like, poor Vic Morrow that had to play this character. Like, it's just oh, so... It's his last character. Yeah. I know, I know. Oh, oh, no. Wait, wait till you hear what his last line was supposed to be. My goodness. I know. Well, last line for the scene, apparently there's a thing about the ending is the real ending. There was just supposed to be the child redemption thing. We're going to get into it, but okay. So the segment ends with Morrow being captured by Nazi officers and flung into a railroad car with Jewish prisoners. However, this is not the original ending envisioned. Morrow was supposed to be more active as a character and redeem himself by rescuing two children. And it was this scene in which the accident happened. Now, the original decision to have the character go through redemption was requested by the studio. And it was John Landis that came up with the idea, as John said, that they would end up filming. And I just wanted to ask you guys, does anyone think that leaving the segment in was the right move to honor Vic Morrow? Or should it just have been replaced completely? I think it should just have been out completely, man. Because like, if you look at it, the next one after this was the Joe Dante segment, which is super like goofy. No, the Spielberg one, actually. Oh, it's, a, it's the old people one after? It's the old mm -hmm. people one, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, even, even then, I feel like if we were taking out yeah. uh, Landis' one, it would have been a cool movie because it would have been like, you know, a bunch of cool little freaky ones and then you have like the super serious, you know, downer at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Downer, man. Yeah, like, dude. just nothing. Boy. Especially if you heard like the, I mean, I guess, if, I don't know when the case started, but like if the case was coming out around mm -hmm. the same time as the film. Yeah. It the case happened way later. Actually, it took it a while. It took a while to actually get it underway. It also depends. If you were to get rid of that segment, could you then take John Landis's name off it? That in the prologue would like if you want to distance yourself. I don't know. I feel like that would have been the right move just to get him off and not give him any credit. Or I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. I think you you start over. I read that apparently Steven Spielberg did consider just scraping the whole project. I just I, I wish I knew more specifics about what was filmed because I, I would imagine everybody was going at once as opposed to like chronologically. So 
Uh-huh. So, yeah, well, what was the production? Was it like, hey, we're going to shoot yours first and this and this? Or was it like, I know hey, because it's like, you think it sounds like it'd be effective, but then that sounds really expensive because you have four different camera crews going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. So like just four different teams. So I, yeah, I don't know. Spielberg was probably going to scrap it. And then his accountant said, oh, here's the amount of money you're going to lose. And he's like, <laughs> okay, okay. I'll, oh, I'll there go my Jaws earnings. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I wonder if some of it was simultaneous too. Is that possible? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Rich, but we don't have those specifics. So. Actually, guys, what am I thinking? I'll just call up Spielberg right now. <laughs> I thought you had his number. <laughs> I lost it. So let's get into the accident. Lannis's segment in the film was intended to be a big special effects display, a noted contrast with the lo-fi nature of the series. And as one journalist wrote, this was the twilight zone for a generation of excess. Filming took place at the Indian Dunes, a ranch in California that was popular due to its size, distance from the major cities, and varied landscapes where several movies and TV shows were filmed, like The Color Purple, Escape from New York, and MacGyver. The scene involved a helicopter bombing the village Morrow was to save the children from. At the controls was Dorsey Wingo, a real-life Vietnam War veteran, but one with no experience working in film or stunt work. During rehearsals, apparently the explosions had buffeted the helicopter and terrified Wingo, but he never told anyone about his worries. What does buffeted mean for those who don't know? Because some people may not know that word. Have you ever heard of a Golden Corral or CC's Pizza? No, just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. So, so I had to look this up, Kylie, but buffeted means to like batter or, or knock around. I think it might be used more in aviation in regards to wind and, and airplanes. So, yeah. And I saw the footage of it being, it's really knocked around. Like the pilot just straight up does not have control for like five yeah. seconds. And yeah. I got something to say uh, about that, but that's another thing. Uh, I, I think I would have said it eventually, but you can see this accident not even in like okay quality you can see it in almost crystal clear quality there's actually a video from landis's lawyer where he's talking about the incident like it was filmed like back when the trial was happening he's standing he's sitting by a tv and then the the screen will take over and it shows the footage and they've like hd remastered it so you could really take it all in and it's it like a, like a 4k transfer or what? They, <laughs> yeah like it has the criterion stamp no but <laughs> But it is like you see it, and they have it from like all these different angles, and they show it, and it's it is jarring to see. It's brutal yeah. because they yeah, don't it's, cut it's, away. They show you even they they, they show everything. They show the end part. It's fucking haunting. They man. show you see, everything. You see pretty much everything. You yeah. see yeah. people. The camera just doesn't even cut away, and you see people run out to go check out, and it holds yeah. on there for like a minute. There, is, you can't see I mean, like the bodies or the blood really. No, the there's too much water and stuff. Head by the helicopter but it's still like you could see the moment where they die and it's horrifying that's what i was wondering can you see the moment that they like how it happens and that kind of stuff yes you see from oh my god i can't you literally see them poor vic morrow running there's even versions that i don't even know how they got the footage but they have the footage from the different angles actually close up and they've intercut it and put the score in everything it's just like a deleted scene so yeah, no, I swear, I swear. You can look this. Uh, this is all on YouTube right now. You can Some go see. It. No, but like, give me shelter was one thing. Like seeing that because it's like you can sort of not see it. Like it's it's shadow. Very quick. But I, yeah. even just seeing this, like the idea of seeing how that takes place. Like I can't. I don't want to spoil it for later in the podcast. But I. I it was in the sh- the shutter special, and yeah, I, they didn't have yeah. a warning for it. They, yeah, man, they just so went to it. Yeah. They, no, and and I yeah. did not expect that. 
I was going to bring it up uh, as a part of the, the Shutter special. I'm glad you brought it up, Tron, that yes, if you go on Shutter and the series, the original series, Cursed Films, yeah. they have episode five talks about this whole incident and stunt work and stuff. And as Tron said, they show it and you get to see that same footage. But if you don't want to watch that, it's on YouTube as well. Dude, they, they talk about it in the in the special. Like there, there was warning signs from like the day before. Like, hey, I don't know if we should do this, man. Like, like, oh. the, like they, they had to move the village like a certain amount of like yes. feet away. Like it's a whole like there was yes. warning signs for like ever, and they just you know, it was. But you know, I I have a lot to say about the people that went on to work with Landis after this, uh, mm-hmm. and I, we're gonna get into it. Can also, I ask you another, how much, yeah. if, you, if you know, you may not know, but like, do you have any idea about the level of communication between the helicopter, the guy, the pilot um, of the helicopter and Landis and like the team, like, was there? There was communication, definitely. I know that. I, I, I do know that this is something out of the court documents that the, the radios, their communication system, <clears throat> excuse me, was faulty. I mean, it worked, but it was also like not the greatest equipment. And there is testimony from multiple people on set, not just the parents, but but crew as well, that Landis was shouting lower, a bull lower, horn. Yeah. A bull lower. Horn. He was using a bullhorn too, yeah. Did the yeah, pilot yeah. say anything like this isn't working or like there's problem here? Or just he like, never did he want to die? Yeah, did he? No, die? I don't, I don't, no. no, he kept working, okay. but he just just like. Vic Morrow, he like wanted a career in Hollywood. I mean, whereas Vic Morrow had already been in movies, this guy was trying to start, and he didn't want to. He didn't want to risk his is the start of his career by like uh, by backing out of something no. and having yeah. people be like, "Oh, he's not worthy" or whatever. So it just goes to show you the the price of ambition for mm-hmm. for yeah. everybody, and it is just very sad. So much yeah. unnecessary risk. He also used real bullets. That's another element. Like all the, when he's shooting the. <laughs> I'll bring this up when we're done talking about the whole yeah. accident, but like I have questions for you all. Okay. So I've been thinking about this and did everyone just figure that since this guy, Dorsey Wingo had been through a real war that this stunt wouldn't be a problem. I mean, even though there doesn't seem to be indication that the crash happened due to PTSD, why would he make a Vietnam pilot relive what must have been a harrowing experience and california labor point. laws what i was just saying that's a great point now why yeah. would you do that california <laughs> labor ptsd in the same situation like even with the set looking like he's back in vietnam <laughs> literally there is there is testimony that people were like wow this really looks like vietnam uh, it's like oh let's get the vietnam pilot to fly in vietnam Stupid, so stupid. So California labor laws wouldn't allow children to shoot scenes past 8 p.m. So rather than try to come up with a creative solution, Landis, and I'm just gonna go ahead and say, cause it's not like he's the only one that was going for this. Other people helped him on the crew, but Landis and family violated child labor laws and hired two young children off the street. And the families were paid under the table, hired without the appropriate permits. And Landis could have put in an application for a special waiver but chose not to because he knew it likely wasn't going to get approved. And now we're talking about also, kids. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead. I was just saying. Also, the parents were not informed that there'd be even a helicopter on set or there'd be any stuff. Yeah. That nothing. was a big nothing. Yeah, nothing. 
Great. We're talking about kids at night carried through water by a 53-year-old man, they're not in good shape, with explosions and a helicopter around them. Of course they were going to deny those work permits. There's no way they would want kids out there. The children's parents were also asked by associate producer George Falsey not to tell any of the onset firefighters that their kids would be part of the scene. The set fire safety officer was also kept in the dark about this. This is so insane. I was like on a thing with, uh, I was on a film set, a PA on a film set with like, we had a kid actor and it, the, the level of um, how things have changed is crazy. Like everyone on set had to be aware that she was there. And like, we all had to be aware of where she was, the child, her parents had to be, both her parents were usually on set and at least one of them had to be with her at all times. And then we also had people monitoring like how long she was on set and like we'd take her away. Even the extras, like we had child, child extras in a scene and the extras had to have parents with them at all times. And we had to have people making sure like the, these are where they are, like they're not leaving this area. Like it was the kids, like we just, it, it, how drastically everything has changed. Like this would never happen now. As Marvin Gaye, Gaye would say, save the babies. All right, so art director, Richard Sawyer created a perfect stand-in for Vietnam, which you get glimpses of in the footage of the incident. And he was lauded on set by producer Frank Marshall. And Landis loved it as well because it was big enough to allow for larger explosion effects. Now okay. in the Shutter series we talked about, Sawyer points out two interesting things he noticed on the day of the incident. First, he claims that Landis, as Trellin said, had the soldiers use live ammunition in the scene that you see in the final film where they shoot at Moro, which is, I've just rewatched Tropic Thunder and it's like a scene from Tropic Dude, Thunder. They're just, they're shooting, <laughs> like it yeah, is yeah. excessively, th that is what, what it came down to was, you know, maybe they could have gone away with the helicopter and everything, but if you see the footage, the explosions are overwhelming. Even me as a viewer, I, I, it was just like, I don't even, this is too much. Like, why do you need a million explosions? This is it, it's it's ridiculous. It's also insanely easy to make water look like bullets are hitting. It's, yeah. We've been doing it since, like, 1950s. Like, yeah. it's, like, insanely, insanely easy effect to accomplish. So that was already an indicator of this is a guy that clearly, like, did not give a fuck about anything. And that's kind of the testimony that we hear from people that remark on the event. So now the second thing was that on the day of shooting, Landis asked Sawyer to rearrange one of the huts at the center of the village. And as he was reviewing the hut in seat position, Sawyer noticed an explosive device underneath. And now he claims no one told him this was going to happen. And he demanded that the explosive be removed. So what I gather from all the different testimonies, this one and others, is how Landis was trying to get away with as much as he could. And as a result, was failing to communicate with people on set. Now, I do find it interesting that despite all this, Sawyer would go on to be the production designer for Landis on The Three Amigos, and more on that later. So despite the violations, safety of the actors, and uncertainty of the explosives, they began shooting the scene around 2 a.m. I just don't understand, like you were saying, like I don't understand how you even thought this was going to work out. Even just the children, like how, just the idea of him wading through the river, how is he supposed to wade through the river holding two children over five? How is yeah. that happening? I mean, carrying them is enough, but wading through thick water, like 
that's not that's not a practical like I struggle was, with two bags from Trader Joe's walking home, you know, like much less uh, two kids through like, like waist high water. Yeah. yeah. Explosion in the back. Like, yeah. So it's like a sensory water, I mean, rivers are not like, I mean, yeah, it's just not, it, it's not a practical idea anyway. So the fact that he was going to add like the helicopter and the explosions on top of that makes absolutely no sense. And then it, yeah. Um, and then the other thing I was like going to ask you guys is that, like, I don't understand why he felt the need to do this all um, the way that he did. Like, the way that he shot this, it just is so unsafe. I don't understand why he needed to do, like, why did he need to let go of the explosions from a shot that would require him to use the actual actors in the shot? Yes. I mean, like, yes. why couldn't he just establish that they're being chased by the helicopter and have it be farther away? Yes. And then do like an extreme wide or something. I mean, they had the budget to do this clearly. So they would have been yep. able to like afford the equipment to do it. So, I and think, they do like an extreme wide with like, I mean, with like dummies or some sort of, and just drop the explosives over it. And they mm -hmm. could have. So, I mean, there's no excuse not to. The fact that he insisted upon doing that is just so ridiculous to me. I can't understand why. Mm -hmm. How would you I think a lot that? of it. Uh, stems from like them like this type of or like these 80s filmmakers kind of revering the people that came before them like Coppola and Kubrick and they're like notorious for being difficult and they think well in order to make a mo good movie I have to make it incredibly real and I have to really put these actors through like shit in order to get what I want but that's just not how it works especially we learned down the line but like it's such a weird distorted version or vision of making a movie I don't get it I don't get it at all no yeah, not worth it. Not worth it, as we will see. Moments before filming, what was supposed to be the climactic scene, apparently, Morrow said to a PA, I must be out of my mind doing this. I should have asked for a stunt double. What can they do but kill me, right? But even more haunting is the fact that since filming a scene in the 1974 film, Mary Crazy Larry, Morrow insisted on having a $1 million insurance policy for any time he would be involved in a scene where he was due to ride in a helicopter. Morrow was very insistent on this, and when asked why, he said, quote, I've always had the premonition that I was going to die in a helicopter crash. Did that just give, did that just give you guys yeah, chills? Yeah, fucking wild. I, mean, <laughs> I got another one for you coming right up. Yeah. I know, that's what I was wondering. Did he have that, because it wasn't scripted, like originally, so did he have like that already set up? Or because there was a helicopter in the scene? Did he have that let, let me call Jennifer part? Jason Lee. Two seconds. <laughs> I know. Her, poor, her father, man. The chopper was stationed 25 feet from the ground, hovering near a large mortar effect. Explosions were detonated, but they were overwhelming for poor Wingo. Production manager Dan Allingham would later testify that he told Wingo, that's too much. Let's get out of here. But Landis over the radio shouted, get lower, lower. And if you see the footage, those explosions are overwhelming. It was way too overboard, and as we've said, completely unnecessary. So as this was going on, Wingo lost control of the helicopter as its tail rotor failed. Already at a low height, it crashed into the water. Now, right before this, Morrow had dropped Chen, and at that moment was reaching out to grab her, but it was too late. Morrow and Lei were instantly decapitated by the rotor blades, while Chen was crushed to death. <sighs> Just so tragic. The fact too that the parents were watching this happen. Yeah, that's fucked up. Could you imagine seeing your seven-year-old decap? 
Like that is just like the um, one of the worst situations I can imagine a human being going through. It's terrible. And you know what's even worse? And then the guy responsible heavily for it still goes on to like do other stuff and have other projects and like not be incriminated for like his obvious yeah. negligence. And making huge movies that are yeah. like heavily advertised for the next like 20 years. So every time you turn on the TV or like go to a theater or go anywhere that there might be any sort of like advertisement, you're seeing something that reminds you of him and that incident. Yeah. That's awful. There, it, it does seem clear that in a way he had no remorse uh, as different, different accounts of, of people that know him or knew him will say um yeah dude, like, it, it looks like, like it didn't phase him at all dude like you'll see him like in documentaries and stuff and he's just like have the happiest old man you'll like ever meet man yeah just, he's just telling stories oh you know this when this happened he says it haunts him every day but i don't know man. Uh... <laughs> it, but yeah, you, yeah no. you made movies within two years after that yeah you'd be having ptsd from the situation yeah and you would be making no more films as we will see he was very busy immediately after this. And my theory is the only reason John Landis stopped having a career was because he want, well, okay. Maybe he didn't want to stop having a career, but because of his piss poor attitude and people probably got tired of his fucking shit that they stopped working with him. Not necessarily because of the incident, which I don't know which one's like sadder then. I will also say this, that Morrow's line in the scene after he would have gone away, he was supposed to tell the kids, I'll keep you safe, kids. I promise. Nothing yeah. will hurt you. I swear to God. Oh, and God. one last tidbit is apparently everybody was quiet and nobody spoke until the mother of Le, the little girl, began screaming. So it must have been a horrific place to be. Following the tragedy... As you can imagine, all sorts of lawsuits started going around, including a charge of manslaughter against Landis, Wingo, production manager Dan Allingham, Falsey, and explosive specialist Paul Stewart. It took three years to get everyone in the courthouse. The prosecutor was Deputy District Attorney Leah D'Agostino, and the trial played out like an Aaron Sorkin courtroom drama with D'Agostino lined up against seven defense attorneys, all male, including a former Watergate prosecutor. Now, one of the defense attorneys even tried to have a mistrial based off of how relentless Diagostino was. She was tearing into everybody, dude. She was fucking badass, apparently. Good. Daniel Lee, the father of Micah, tested that he heard Landis instructing the helicopter to fly lower all four parents testified that they were never told there would be helicopters or explosives on set. And they had been reassured that there would be no danger, only noise. Now this next bit is, belief. Lee had survived the Vietnam War and immigrated with his wife to the United States. And he was horrified when explosions began on the Vietnamese village set, bringing back painful memories. So this dude, literally escaped Vietnam only to be brought back to it. And apparently he didn't even know it was going on. Spielberg chose to cut ties with Landis because of not only what happened, but because of Landis failing to take responsibility for the incident. I believe it's even on video 
one of the courtroom tapes, you can see John Landis saying, I know in my head and I know in my heart that we did not cause the accident. So justice was indeed blind because despite the defendants admitting that they broke child labor laws by having the kids on set in the first place, their defense that the accident was unavoidable won the jury over and all men were acquitted. Landis would say in a 1996 interview that the tragedy, which I think about every day, had an enormous impact on my career from which it may possibly never recover. But a glimpse at his IMDb history tells us another story. After the Twilight Zone movie, Landis did the Michael Jackson Thriller video, a documentary for Disneyland's 30th anniversary, a music video for Paul McCartney, and three films, Spies Like Us, The Three Amigos, and Coming to America, which was the third highest grossing film of 1988. So during the three years of the trial, he did some side projects and two movies. And, the, and two years after the acquittal, he made one of the biggest movies of the year. So I think it's safe to say that the reason John Landis, his career dwindled, was John Landis. And as we've said, he was known to be an unpleasant person to work with. So get this, in 1990, two years after the release of Coming to America, Eddie Murphy was interviewed for Playboy magazine in which he openly discusses the nastiness of working with Landis. The name of the article? John Landis is fucked up. Murphy says that Landis resented him for not showing up to his trial. The two had worked on trading places in 1983, and Murphy even goes on to say that he couldn't support him because he knew what Landis had done was wrong, but he still considered him a friend and wanted to help him out because, as he put it, his career was fucked, which, as we, as we recounted, doesn't really seem quite accurate. So Murphy got Landis a job as a director for Coming to America, despite pushback from Paramount because apparently Landis wanted too much money. And now you'd think Landis would have been humble and become a more gentle director, but this was not the case. As a way to taunt Murphy, Landis would loudly make remarks on set that he wasn't afraid to tell Eddie Murphy, fuck you, and how much money Murphy had and that people should take advantage of him. Side note, this sounds like the cringiest set you could ever be on. This led to an altercation in which Murphy choked out Landis on the set in front of everybody. And by the way, Landis would still end up working with Murphy on Beverly Hills Cop 3 some years later. So I don't know what is real anymore because we hear these people like Murphy and art director Sawyer talk about how Landis was a terrible guy, but yet they end up still working with him. So the incident would fortunately lead to better safety measures in place for film sets. The position risk management consultant was created. This person is involved even at the development stage to ensure that safety is a priority at all times. Risk managers also can't be fired by a director or producer. So the cast and crew have a safe outlet to bring up concerns so that they can stop a situation without repercussions. The director is often seen as dominant in their impeachable power and this was Landis's reputation. So perhaps if Vic Morrow wasn't afraid to be thought of as difficult, and if Wingo didn't want to be seen as a chicken shit as he tried starting a career in Hollywood, and if Landis and his crew hadn't lied to the parents and said there would only be loud noises, then we likely wouldn't be talking about this today. I mean, that's the thing is like, we don't know exactly what was going on in like, we don't know what's going on in Landis's head right now, and we don't know what his life has been like since then, or what he's done in his personal time, and we don't know what went on in these sets, but, like, we do know that these kids died, 
these parents were not aware of the situation and he had communication from the people on the helicopter that there was problems and so, as you I pointed out that the scene was set up to where you had real people under a helicopter with explosions film it all separately and put it together you're filmmakers you figure that type of shit all the time right so like uh, did he do it i mean clearly did he set out to have this accident happen no but like the fact that he's going to say it was unavoidable is bullshit like there's clear yeah. negligence there I'm sorry, I gotta head out, but I just want to say again, fuck John Landis. <laughs> there. I'm gonna screenshot it. Hopefully you guys can't hear this noise. I'm sorry if you can. And that's all, all that. I'm gonna head out. I can't wait to talk to you guys again, though. Uh, all right. I wish I was able to stick around, but see you guys. Take Later, care, brother. Bye. See ya. Um, I, I want to know where John Landis came. Like, why did he come in with such, like, a fucking, like, yo, I'm fucking John Landis. Like, where did, why did he come in with such, like, a, you know, so gun-ho, so... I, like, well, I, like I mean, he made American Wolf in London, which is okay. It's a really good horror movie, but like, okay, settle down, dude. You know, like yeah, like, I know that if he has, if he knows, like the amount of special effects or the level of the special effects on an American Werewolf in London, yeah, <laughs> are all pra- are all practical effects, and they're amazing. So if yeah. he knew all of those people that were capable of doing those things, why did he still feel it was necessary to do all of this in one shot, yeah. happening all at the same time? Yeah, it. It's just troubling. Everything about it, his attitude, the way everything was set up, it's like this dude seems like a monster. And I, I'm just, so many people have said it that I'm just convinced at this point. And I realize I don't know him personally and I wasn't there for these situations. And I am going based off what may be biased opinions, but it's all, I don't really see much out there saying that he's a good person. So I'm just yeah. going to kind of go with the other one. There's clearly negligence there that was avoidable. Yeah. Yeah. So there's clearly an ego that is there that according to the other testimonies has not gone down. However, we know that it was there at this point. There was ego in the need to make that shot that way. So that you can no one can deny that. And no one can deny that this was unavoidable. Like there's negligence there caused by an ego or a need to present this dominance and make this real. Yeah, I want to. You think he he wanted to be so hardcore in his thing because he was working with like top pre top directors like Spielberg, Miller. Honestly, like obviously, we're not going to blame those dudes. They had nothing to do with this. But you're right. There were such higher directors from him. You know, he was kind of the newcomer. So he's like, oh shit, I got to fucking prove myself. You know, got to. Yeah, no, that's why. Like he's like, you know, I'm sure he had seen all their movies, so he'd seen like Road Warrior, and he's like, oh my god, like you know. I'm, I'm going to try to do something like that. Like, yeah, I'm sure he, w- it was like a kind of a dick measuring contest in a way. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, more so on his side, because obviously those dudes were like, yeah, like, yeah what are you doing, man? <laughs> like, well, George Miller's like, well, we did that all movie in Australia, mate. We're, we're supposed <laughs> to die making movies. That's all right. <laughs> we're born to, we're born to die. mate. <laughs> well, I do think the point that the trailer like brings up about, um, this idea of like making things real and the director being this very sort of a dictator is really interesting just because like there's so many other incidents pre this film of this happening like Hitchcock like in the birds um there's like the scene where Tippi Hendren's character is attacked by birds Mm -hmm. and he basically uh 
told her, at least according to her testimonies, he told her that they would all be like fake birds that would be thrown. And she claims that there were real birds mixed in wow. to the situation. They didn't tell her about that were like being thrown basically at her. I wonder if they told her on Roar that there'd be fake lions too. No, I'm just kidding. I know, <laughs> I know. The source is not as great, but like, or what is it? What is it? Shelley Duvall on The Shining? Oh, who, yeah. Like Kubrick had the entire cast um, basically ignore her for the entire shoot and like, be <laughs> rude to her, like told, instructed them to be like, isolate her and be terrible to her. The one, like, I can't remember how many takes they did, but like the one scene where she's like, um, moving the knife around as they're like yeah. going up the stairs yeah. is like the, is like the world record for the most takes. It's like eighty something takes or something. Oh my god! I would just love it if like I know that in I know what Shari talking about. You can actually see Jack Nicholson like kind of dirty the frame a little bit. But like I would love it if if there was actual coverage they did where like he was like Jack Jack step aside and it was just Kubrick there <laughs> with the fucking axe or what I I don't think he had a weapon but he's just coming at her like like saying the lines that Jack yeah, yeah, yeah. would have said. And like, he's like, let's film this because she's fucking scared of me. I want you to bet that Jack wasn't in like the first 65 takes. Yeah, yeah. Right, and then right, we, right. Like Jack came on, Jack's call time was later, but Shelly didn't know. And yeah. like Kubrick knew he was going to torture her and like wear her down before he got the take that he actually wanted to use. And you know, he was so anal and like specific about what he was doing that I would not be surprised if that's true. I'm just and literally going to start telling people that that's a fact. I'm just going to be like, do you know that he did that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we, we can definitely talk offline, but for the sake of this episode, I think we have said all that needs to be said, unless anyone wants to throw anything else out. I wanted to, uh, have you noticed that with Fist of Twilight as a movie, it hasn't really gotten attention in the modern day? Like, there hasn't been a really good Blu-ray. There hasn't been nothing. Like, it's just kind of just, it's there. Like, hey, it's Twilight a movie. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Like, it's not really. Because it's honestly, it's not even, as we've pointed out, there's, like, the tone issues. And it's just, yeah. like, something about it also being in color as opposed to black and white. It's just, like, it's not, it's not good, man. They didn't, they lost every, I think the problem is that, like, because there were four different directors and they were mm -hmm. all trying to make their own mark. Yeah. Like, like you said, it's like a dick measuring contest. Like, they're all trying to make each of the segments, like, their segment. Yeah. yeah. So it totally doesn't work. Like, it's not like where there's certain anthology films where they have different directors. And, like, like Dead of Night's a great example. There's sort of a tonal shift that you can notice. But, like, the directors were all working for, like, a common goal. Yeah. They're working together. Whereas, like, in this, it's clear that they're all, like, working against each other, and they're not on the same page at all. The yeah. producers want to say, like, are changing a little bit. So, like, the tonal shift is so, um, you, it's so, you can see it. And then they lost Sterling. They lost Sterling. Like, yeah. the, like, the Twilight Zone is Rod Sterling. Yeah. So, also, like, when you remove him, and you remove all those great science fiction writers, sorry, I could go on forever, but, like, the genius behind the Twilight Zone is that a lot of the writers for the show weren't, like, television writers. They were um science fiction writers that were known yeah. for like their ability to write short stories that uh, were like being taken and like taught how to write television like richard matheson is a great example so you know when you're taking like people that are used to writing for film and like writing other things like yeah these other yeah it's like these writers were like very good at writing the thing that they were writing so so i guess we're waiting for jordan peele's twilight zone movie huh? what <laughs> <laughs> leonardo DiCaprio because he had one too who Leonardo DiCaprio was wanted as like wanted to make this film 
uh, or remake, uh, like make a Twilight Zone movie for a long time. Really? Mm. Yeah. It keeps like, I, if you if you look at like Ryan Slater, like IMDb Pro or like look, there's like articles or like all kinds of stuff about like how he's wanted to make, like his company's wanted to do it for years. And they, I don't That's know why. Out of, all, out of all the people, I would never would imagine him. So Apparently. I want to have a segment where a man wakes up in a world and the only people there are women and they're supermodels. And I play the guy and, um, and it's, uh, it's actually a kind of a happier episode. And uh, well, Jonah Hill's there. Yeah, I'm trying. Uh, Jonah's in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marty, you want to? Okay, Marty's in. Um, everybody's got to be topless for some reason, too. Uh, this is a happier one. I, I forgot what I was talking about. Make it happen. All right, let's go. Actually, I would love Martin Scorsese. I think could do a great job doing this. Like first, even though he doesn't generally do, like I feel like if you redid this concept and then took like scripts that weren't written by, like took science fiction writers or like people that focus on that and had them write the scripts and then had like Martin Scorsese, Dennis Villeneuve or whatever, and then maybe like two other people that like know how to make these types of films would do. I think they do like uh, Ridley Scott, you know. Like directors that focus on writing science fiction. How about we only think- bring in directors uh, seventy years or older? So <laughs> <laughs> that would work, man. That would work. <laughs> uh, we we bring George Miller back because I would yeah, say obviously. like if if there is like if there is a, a good segment within that, it's his. Yeah, it's his. dude. It, yeah. Like his is the most Twilight Zone. And it's like, it's filmed, like, that's the only one I actually rewatched when in preparation for this. Funny enough, oh, okay, and I rewatched, and I saw the actual, like, the Vic Morrow one. Uh, but I skipped the other two, and I saw just went to uh, George Miller's. And, like, dude, the way that, like, the plane just blows, like, not blows up, but the window goes out, and people are flying around, like, it looked, I felt like I was really in a plane that that was happening. But, okay, uh, we are we are signing off. Thanks for hanging out with us for our special episode. Check out our social media pages. The the links or the the tags, what have you, are in the show notes. And uh, shoot us an email if you have a recommendation or a comment or whatever. And uh, be sure to rate us on iTunes. And we will see you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>